0: You are listening to Inclusion Evolution, a bi-weekly podcast that brings you insightful and engaging conversations on diversity, equity, and inclusion in the legal profession, the technology space, the world of sports, and our everyday. Here are your hosts, Lisa Mueller and Michael Kasdan.
1: Welcome back to Inclusion Evolution. I'm Lisa Mueller.
2: And I'm Mike Cousins.
1: Well, Mike, we're back with yet another episode. And today we're going to talk some sports. And this is a topic that the two of us really share a love for. And in particular, we're going to take a look back at this year's March Madness NCAA Basketball Tournament. And in particular, the women's basketball aspect of it. And to do that, we have two very special guests with us today, Malcolm Lemons and Professor David Berry. And let me start off talking a little bit about Malcolm. He is a former college basketball player himself. He played his college ball at Niagara and Cal State University, San Marcos. And after graduating from Niagara University with a degree in business management, he went on to pursue a professional basketball career overseas. And now he's an entrepreneur, an author, and a public speaker, and he focuses on helping athletes build their personal brands and prepare for life after sports. He is also the founder of The Hype Report, a newsletter providing the latest stories and insights at the intersection of sports and Web3. Malcolm is also a two-time author via Lessons from the Game and Impact Beyond the Game, as well as a contributor to publications including the Huffington Post, Front Office Sports, and Boardroom.
2: And our second guest is Professor Dave Barry. Uh, Dave is a sports economist and professor of economics at Southern Utah University, and he spent the last 25 years researching sports and economics. Professor Barry is the lead author. Of the 2006 book, The Wages of Wins, Taking Measure of the Many Myths in Modern Sport, which looks at the four major North American sports from an academic econometric point of view, investigating issues like the relationship between payrolls and wins, quarterback play in the NFL, competitive balance in baseball, and player performance and value in the NBA. He's also the lead author of Stumbling on Wins with the Financial Times Press in 2011 and the sole author of Sports Economics, a textbook uh, with Macmillan Publishers in 2018. Beyond all these books, he has authored or co-authored more than 70 papers and written on the subject of sports economics for a number of popular media outlets, including the New York Times, Atlantic, Time, uh, Vice Sports, and Forbes. Um, and his work covers a really wide variety of topics in sports economics, including player evaluations, um, drafting of players, labor disputes, and college sports. In recent years, he's actually focused much of his research on gender and sports. And last year, um, I personally had the pleasure of working with Professor Barry on his recent article for the Good Men Project, who are the best in sports? If your answer doesn't include women, you don't know sports. Um, and that article is why the best basketball player in the world right now might just be a woman. Um, and what that says about our well-accepted um, but flatly incorrect you know, notions regarding men's versus women's sports, and we're going to get into that a lot
1: today. So with that, Malcolm and David, thank you so much for joining us today. Mike and I are really excited to have you both on the podcast.
3: Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks
1: for having us. Malcolm, I thought I would start off with you. And I wanted to go back a couple months, not too far, but to March, and talk about the real moment that women's college basketball seemed to have this year in the NCAA tournament. It really was March Madness. And, you know, there really was a lot of buzz this year about the dominance of I was Caitlin Clark. And then we had, you know, some controversy after the finals, after LSU won with Angel Reese and her can't-see-me trash talk. But all in all, there was just tremendous excitement this year about uh, the women's basketball uh, Final Four. So what do you think it was this year? Did something change, um, or do you think we'll see more of this going forward?
3: Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think from my perspective, um, it just seemed like it was a more compelling storyline around the matchup, to be honest. I mean, you had two teams, um, that essentially came from contrasting backgrounds and overall makeups. You know, Iowa predominantly white team from you know a rural setting, and had LSU was a predominantly black team from a, probably a more urban setting. And, and not even speaking from like a stereotypical standpoint, that's kind of just was what it was. And and then you had two competitive uh, star players that were uh, extremely competitive and unapologetic about that, and extremely expressive as well. And so I think looking at that matchup looking at that narrative all of that kind of fueled um you know the storyline around the game and and that in turn you know earned a lot of eyeballs you had platforms like uh bleacher report and um house of highlights and, and some of these bigger media platforms that are you know have huge social audiences kind of pushing that narrative along and really driving a lot of attention uh to the game and so people who wouldn't have otherwise watched uh the the NCAA women's tournament were more intrigued because of that storyline and and that just fueled um just the overall viewership of the game and you had, you know, in turn, because of all that, the most watched women's championship game ever. And so I think storytelling around sports has always been huge. We've saw the result of that this year in the women's tournament and the kind of the, the result of these players Uh, putting themselves out there really expressing their personalities in different ways Um, given like we live we're going through kind of this NIL transformation the past couple years Um, you know all of that combined has really kind of pushed the game forward in my opinion and give women's sports women's basketball in particular a bigger platform more eyeballs more attention on the sport so I don't know if we'll consistently see this going forward um, in, in the tournaments to follow but I think um, with with all that being said, um, it was it was a step in the right direction of just bringing more awareness around the potential that women's sports have, and giving these females a, a, a bigger platform and, and just more attention as to to the to the, the overall product and and what they're able to do on and off the court.
1: Yeah, and Malcolm, I wanted to ask you. You talked about Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese, but I thought it was also an interesting dynamic with the two head coaches. You know, you had somebody in Don Staley, you know, um, very gifted and talented player and coach. And then you had the very colorful Kim Mulkey as well. And it seemed to me, in addition to having the players that added a lot of color this year, you certainly had uh, the coaches that added color and at least Kim Mulkey's outfits added a lot of color.
3: Right. A hundred percent. I think that also kind of played a, a huge part in it is, is just the, the, the personalities of the coaches as well. And, and, uh kind of the attention that they brought to the game so i think all of those factors really played a huge role in why this matchup was so polarizing and compelling and intriguing to the viewers and i i hope that we do see more of this going forward in the women's game because as i said before i think it's all good um when you're bringing different uh you know personalities and, and people from different backgrounds to to really help kind of fuel that that narrative and drive uh it kind of just the overall viewership forward. So,
4: yeah, and no, I love those points. And I know, uh, you know, Charles Barkley, the uh, role model, not a role model around amount of rebound. I know he, you know, when when he was talking about it, he was saying and making a lot of the points about how these ladies should have a platform and how you know talking about. I think he said, you know, we put bad NBA players in commercials before some of, some of these superstars. So so it is interesting to see that platform grow. Um, before we leave this, just real quick, um, Malcolm, about what, what do you think about the Caitlin Clark Angel Reese moment? Because I feel like there was a lot of talk about that and some controversy. Just curious kind of what your take. You know, would, would men have been treated the same way? Is this a gender thing, a racial thing, something else? Just curious to get your quick take on it.
3: I think people try to make it out to be something that it, that uh, that it was bigger than it, than it actually was. So, you know, people tried to say it was a racial thing. And I I don't think that, uh, men would have been treated the same way, but at the end of the day, you know, coming, you know, being an athlete, most of my life and and watching women's women play and watching, you know, playing in in numerous games myself, you know, at at the end of the day, athletes, they compete, they talk trash, they taunt. Um, Mm -hmm. that is the nature of being an athlete. And I don't think it was something that was out of the ordinary, um, but I think mainstream media tried to try to, you know, play it out to be. And I think, you know, especially with like the comments that uh, Dave Portnoy had made about Angel Reese um, exactly. saying, you know, she was a classist piece of,
1: exactly. piece of
3: shit, yep. part of my language. But I just thought that was totally out of line for for a number of different reasons and totally inappropriate. Um, but it, it, at the end of the day, it was, it was just athletes, you know, doing what athletes do. And I, I, I think that all of that was good for the sport. Um, I don't think women should be treated any differently when it comes to sports than men, but that just showed there is still this narrative that women have to, uh, you know, it's kind of the sexist nature of women's sports that we still have to kind of get over, um, and, and viewing them as not athletes or, um, as you know, charity cases in some in, in some regards and, and things of that nature. So that you know, all of those factors are still, I think, hurdles for the women's sports, um, and and something that we have to continuously um, you know revamp as we as the as the, uh, the, the you know women's sports grow. But that particular situation wasn't any more bigger than you know athletes just doing what athletes do, in my opinion.
4: Yeah, no, it makes sense to me, and I think this is. This is a great point to segue and invite, um, you know, David, Professor Barry into the conversation because let's, let's take this a little bit deeper. You know, you, you and I have had some conversations about that, about the disparity between the men's game and the women's game. Um, we've talked about it through the lens of basketball and soccer and all sorts of sports. And, uh, you know, I remember when, it, when, when you and I were first talking uh, on Twitter, um, it followed a conversation that I think I had, you know, so, with with my son, actually, um kind of about, hey, are, you know why are we watching women's sports or men's sports? What are the differences? um and and I came to talk to you about it, and I think that that resulted uh, in an article that you wrote and I edited for the Goodman Project, where you kind of it really explained your point of view on this issue, like where this disparity comes from. um and and I think I do want to report that I was actually on my son Jacob's podcast recently. um and I think along the lines that Malcolm was talking about, um, you know, he and his friends were all talking about and raving about Caitlin Clark. So that to me is really hopeful, uh, and compelling, but I, I, let's, let's go back. I'd love to get your take on this disparity between the men's game and the women's game where it comes from.
0: All right. Uh, well, I, I think one thing we want to note about where the women's basketball is today, uh, is it's. Title IX is passed in 1972. So prior to 1972, there really isn't a lot of women's college sports or women's sports in general. Uh, and so, and in contrast, men's college sports goes back, you know, 100 years earlier. Uh, and one of the key elements in terms of, of demand for a sport is time. Uh, The longer the time period goes by, the more likely your fan base is going to increase because the act of being a fan is interactive. You interact with other fans. There have to be other fans for you to get the complete experience. And if you go back to the early history of the NBA, Major League Baseball, NFL, um, what you see is there are no fans. There were no fans at the beginning. Um, I, I often tell people Uh, Of the first 40 franchises in NFL history, 90% of them went completely out of business. Of the first 18 franchises in Major League Baseball history, 16 of them went completely out of business. So that's the norm when a league starts, when a sport starts. So when you're looking at college women's basketball today and you look at the numbers, and they report these numbers to the Department of Education, the amount of revenue that women are bringing in right now uh, in terms of college women's basketball is equivalent to what the men were bringing in in the mid-1990s. Now, think back to the mid-1990s. Was college men's basketball a big deal in the mid-1990s? And the answer is, of course it was, right? That's 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 Grand Hill. It's Christian Leitner. That's the Fab Five. That's, Absolutely. that's. and if you go back further, you got Michael Jordan. You got Patrick Ewing. Exactly. College men's basketball is huge at this point, right? Um, and that's where women's basketball is right now. It's it's exactly in the same spot. So what you've seen here is time. Time has passed by and the fan bases have been built up. And so now you're saying that women's sports is looking a lot like men's sports. And that is really what we should expect. You sh- there, is, there is no fundamental difference in terms of what the demand should be for women and men's sports. And this is something that I talked about in that article when it comes to demand for sports it doesn't make a difference how well somebody performs in an absolute sense it only makes a difference how well they perform in a relative sense and the best example of this is boxing Um, canola alvarez is considered one of the greatest boxers in the world is he one of the greatest boxers in the world no no i could find any number of guys who weigh 250 pounds who get in a ring with canola alvarez and it wouldn't even be a contest but they don't let those fights happen because we know that if a really big person fights a little person, the little person is going to get hurt really badly. So they don't let the fights happen. So Canola Alvarez is considered great because he's great relative to who he competes against, and that is the same standard that we that you can see gradually people are realizing that's the same standard we should use for women's sports. Doesn't make a difference whether Caitlin Clark is better than any man who plays. Oh, it only makes a difference she's better against the women. Same with Angel Reese. Same with Uh, any number of other women. It's relative to their competition that matters. Um, And so that's what we're seeing. We're seeing people are, are, I think, starting to realize that. um, And that's why you're seeing the growth.
1: David, do you see similar growth for the WNBA? I mean, it's been over 25 years now. And, you know, the WNBA has struggled. You've had expansion, contraction, hopefully some more expansion. Um, How much more time do you think... um the WNBA is going to need.
0: The WNBA is exactly where the NBA was after twenty-five years. Um, you look at the attendance numbers; they're almost identical. Uh, this is a, a report came out at Bloomberg uh, just about ten days ago. Uh, I was writing at Forbes five years ago. I didn't know how much revenue the WNBA had. Um, I I speculated. I went and looked at. I knew what the television contract was. I knew what the ticket prices were. I knew what the attendance was. I talked to some people in the WNBA and I came up with a figure and you can find this online. You Google WNBA revenue, you will see a figure shows up $60 million. Total league revenue, $60 million. That came from me. Um, And I made that up. I was like, that's my best guess. Uh, WNBA revealed to Bloomberg about 10 days ago, I was wildly off. Uh, When I was writing that, revenue was $100 million. Today, revenue is $200 million. Uh, And if you go back to the early, to the NBA after 25 years, and you take into account that right now the WNBA has a terrifically bad national television deal that the NBA negotiated for them, uh, revenues for the WNBA are, are at least equivalent, if not more, than what NBA revenue was after 25 years. The WNBA is right on target for what you'd expect it to be in a league that is that old. Uh, you go back to the NFL after 25 years or Major League Baseball for 25 years. They all looked like that. Think about Babe Ruth. How popular do you think Babe Ruth actually was when he played, okay? If you go back and look at the attendance numbers, average attendance in Major League Baseball games, maybe 10,000, St. Louis Browns are getting 3,000. Nobody went to see Babe Ruth play. Um, that you you see the video, that you see that that what you're often are seeing are you're looking at like World Series games where there would be a crowd. They don't have a lot of film footage of Ruth playing on an afternoon in the middle of July. If you did, what you'd see is a lot of empty stands because there weren't very many fans. We know that from the attendance numbers. They kept the attendance numbers. You go back to early NBA history. People talk about how great Oscar Robertson was. Nobody saw Oscar Robertson play. Average attendance for the St. Louis uh, for the Cincinnati Royals when Oscar Robertson played was like 3,000 fans. Nobody paid attention to this guy. He was not that particularly famous. When Wilt Chamberlain scored 100 points in an NBA game in 1962, the game was played in Hershey, Pennsylvania, before 4,000 fans. There was no television. There was no radio. And the nation's sports newspaper of record was the Sporting News. They gave that whole story one paragraph in the middle of the newspaper. And it said, by the way, Will Tremblin scored 100 points in the NBA game. Isn't that neat? (laughs) Nobody cared. That's where it all started. So we have to have perspective on these things.
4: Yeah, no, it's interesting. And I mean, I I also was thinking about the WNBA. You know, the Liberty has made a little super team. The Aces have made made their own little super team. And going back to the storytelling and the storylines, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, But I wanted to ask you about just one additional point um, that we've talked about and you have made kind of in some of your writing, but also, you know, not just the time, which I think is a a really, really interesting point to think about, um, but also just the fact that we have had and still have predominantly male announcers, male owners, male media, male media representatives, Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that issue and the impact and how that might be changing a little bit?
0: That's also a very, very big part of this. The success that women's sports has had is despite the fact they have lots of things going against them. Uh, 90% of the sports media is male, almost entirely white male. Uh, And they're the ones who choose the stories that get told. If you go on ESPN's front page right now. I guarantee you, and I do this exercise in my classes all the time, uh, you'll right now see 90% of the stories, 95% of the stories are about men's sports. That is what the sports writers yep. care about. That's yep. what they write about. Uh, and so that's, that's, so women do not get the same free me and, and you want to understand sports media coverage is free advertising and the women don't get that. Women don't get the same level of, of private investment. Uh, Somebody put forward over $300 million to buy a Major League Soccer team, which is a terrible name for that league. It is not Major League Soccer. Major League Soccer exists in Europe. Everyone who follows soccer knows that. What you're seeing in the United States is Minor League Soccer. Okay, That's what you're seeing. They paid $300 million for a Minor League Soccer team. Uh, Then you look at what people are willing to pay for a WNBA team or a National Women's Soccer League team, which are the premier Leagues in their sport,
1: exactly. and it's
0: nowhere near three hundred million, no. right? Um, nope. Then you turn to public investment. Uh, men's sports receives billions and billions of dollars in taxpayer subsidies. Uh, right now, uh what are you you're saying? Um the a's, the oakland a's are, are are playing a game where they're trying to elicit taxpayer funds. Um, uh, to 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 uh, for for their for their team. That's why they're, that's why they're they're are moving to Las Vegas. Um, that's that's very common. Uh, people who study this will tell you women's sports teams do not get public subsidies. The very first stadium being built for a women's professional team is being built in Kansas City for a National Women's Soccer League team. It is entirely private funding. Uh, we do not give billions of dollars to women's sports. So when you look at all the things going against women's sports it's still, it's pretty amazing. They've come as far as they've come, uh, because they are not given the free things that men's sports are given. Men did not create men's sports. It was not a market process that created this. This is a process where they were given tremendous amount of advantages and that's how they got what they got.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, it's a, it's shame, you know, um, Kobe Bryant, before he passed away, was doing so much to try and help women's sports, particularly women's uh, basketball and the the WNBA. And it would have been fascinating to see had he lived where, you know, that would be at the moment. But, you know, interestingly enough, um, Tom Brady's invested in the WNBA. And as Mike alluded to, we've got these kind of super teams now in New York, you know, Uh, Brianna Stewart's gone along with Courtney Vandersloot and, you know, Candace Parker has now joined uh, the Aces in in Vegas. Um, So what do you guys think, Um, Malcolm, what do you think in terms of um, where we are right now? Are we starting to bear witness to the power of some of this generational talent like Caitlin Clark and Angel Reese and others? Do you think maybe women's basketball is arriving Um, I think David pointed out there's still a lot of roadblocks, but it it seems like we might be chipping away at it finally.
3: Yeah, I I think so. I think as you know, David made a lot of great points about the growth and revenue and the progress that they've made over the years. But as he also said, like these things do take time. Um, I think, you know, obviously women's sports need more media coverage. Um, to make it more mainstream and to bring more attention to the game and, and they need more funding. Um, I mean, it's really as simple as that. They, they, you know, going back to what I said about, you know, people kind of treating them differently. And as a charity case, it it shouldn't be because the product is there and it's good. and, and, And that shows in the numbers and, you know, we've, we've, started to see more investment being made in the space. I think it was this year that the Monarch collective raised, um, a hundred million to invest in women's sports. And then you had the WNBA raise 75 million last year to invest in their growth and to revamp the business model and things of that nature. So, um, I think the fact of the matter is that, you know, money goes to where the audience is and, you know, the more that we support, uh, you know, women's sports and attend the games and, and tell stories about them, the more opportunities that they'll get to, to reinvest back into the product and, and really grow and, and, and reach new levels of outcome for, uh, you know, specifically the WNBA. So I think it's there, but, you know, as David mentioned, like these things do take time and it's, it's up to, you know, the fans and the people who are invested in the game to continue pushing, uh, women's sports forward and, 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 really just helping it grow, uh, you know, year by year.
4: David, another sport that's always in the news on this issue has been soccer, especially with the dominance of the U.S. women's national team, you know, both absolutely and also just relative to the men's team. Um, And yet in in that space, there's still a pay disparity. Um, And it's not only in soccer. I know you recently wrote an article about the gender wage gap in the WNBA being bigger than it's ever been. Um, So, could you talk a little bit about that, that disparity and how you think it can be addressed and might play out?
0: All right, so that's, that's part of that story with the WNBA. So the WNBA uh, was quite... I think that when they when they first started talking about this revenue number that they now have, which is $200 million, I think, you know, I, I my guess is they were probably pretty excited to tell people that until they realized uh, what that... The next question that obviously leads to, women, WNBA players collectively are only being paid 20 million dollars and we know that um and so if the revenue is 200 million then the women are getting 10 percent of the yeah. revenue uh that's a really low number i have never and i've looked at men's professional sports uh what percentage the players have gotten paid we have data from the 1950s and 1970s and then beyond that uh, I have never seen in any of the major men's sports leagues at any point where the men being paid only 10%. Uh, that, that is just an incredibly low number. Uh, and the reason why it is what it is, is because the, the collective bargaining agreement they have with the women does not clearly link revenue growth to salaries. Uh, there is some language about that, but it's quite convoluted and the, 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 the the prospect of of whatever revenue sharing there is kicking in is pretty low. Um, And so as a consequence, unlike what you see in the men's game, where as revenues go up, salaries go up, in the women's game, as revenues go up, salaries don't really change. Uh, And so the women are being treated really quite badly. Uh, If the women in the WNBA were being paid like the men, where they were getting 50% of basketball-related income, then the top women in the WNBA would be paid something around 2 to $3 million. That's what the salaries would be. And if that were the case, then Brittany Griner doesn't go to Russia. Why, it, why would she? She could exactly. make all the money she wants in the WNBA. So these, these low salaries have really severe consequences because what it's doing is it's forcing these women to play basketball year-round. Uh, I was recently yeah. told um, that the number one pick in the WNBA draft was she the number one pick? Well, one of the top picks in the WNBA draft two years ago is now on her twenty-fourth month consecutive of playing basketball Oh, because she that's... played college, went to WNBA, oh, wow. went to Europe, went to the WNBA, is, and it just keeps going on, right? Never ends. That's not a good. That's not good for your product. You do not want no. your athletes playing twenty-four straight months, um, and this is a choice. You chose this. This is not something you have to do. You could pay these women what 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 the you could pay the same scale the men are getting paid. You could give them 50% of basketball-related income, uh, but you're choosing to give them 10%. That's a choice. You don't have to do that. Um, and so that's that's a league decision. Uh so the WNBA has has this real problem in that. It is growing and it's getting bigger and despite all the issues, it is still it's getting bigger. But they they have significant problems how they treat their athletes that could be solved if they simply said, Okay, we've things have changed more rapidly than we thought, and we need to tear up this agreement and start all over again.
1: David, let me ask you a question on that, because it's well known that the women who play in the WNBA, they're very close. It's a very close knit community. And, you know, when they were in the bubble during COVID, you know, there were a lot of stories to that effect. So do they continue to band together and just strike and tell the, you know, the, you know, hires up, you know, we've had enough, you know, it's time for us, you know, to to get 50 percent Um, or, you know, is that do you think that would be futile?
0: That would be futile. Uh, the reason why it's futile is even though the WNBA is doing as well as the NBA was de- doing the early 70s, uh, going on strike when your league is relatively small, especially when your league is owned by billionaires and that's that's the situation there and many of these owners are billionaires. What exactly is the threat you're making? if you don't if we don't if you don't pay us better, we're not going to show up and you'll have no money. I'm sorry, I have, I have billions I have money. The amount of, even if you're making the whole league is 200 million, it's still insignificant relative Ooh. to my portfolio. Right. So you don't have any bargaining power and and you don't see in men's sports, no. any history of unions gaining traction when the leagues were very small. Uh, they gained traction when they could threaten something. And so the women, it, it's, this is not a problem with the union not negotiating. Well, I think the union got the best deal. They probably could have gotten there. There was no threat of a strike. So all they can do is is try to publicly shame the organization as best they can. And that's it. And that's not, that's not going to get you very far. You're not no. going to get to 50% doing that. Uh, there are owners, clearly, uh, if you look at the owner of the Aces and the owner of some of the other teams who clearly uh, want to change this, but there are other owners who clearly don't. I, uh, one of the issues in women's sports... Beyond all the other gaps we've talked about, is there is a significant emotional gap. Uh, men's sports teams have owners that are emotionally invested in their product. They go to every game. Uh, they grab players on other teams during playoff games. You don't see that in women's basketball, do you? Do you, you don't see the owners on the sidelines typically. Not for, most of them are not. No. I I've seen WNBA championship teams where they won the title, and I can't see the owner. And I can't see the owner at the game. Yeah. And it's like, how can you be, how, What what's the threat that if I can't even get you interested in them winning a championship, I certainly can't get you interested in, then if I walk off the job, what are you going to do? I, I didn't care to watch it when you were on the job. I'm not going to care if you don't show up. Um, so that's that's a real issue. Women Women don't have a lot of bargaining power with the men who own the teams.
1: Malcolm, I'm kind of curious to get your perspective on this conversation.
3: I mean, David, really. He hit the nail on the head. Um, you know that the the union is going to do what they can do to support the players and then to get them the best deal possible. But I think it, I definitely look at it as a league problem. Um, and as he said before, like it's not good for the product at the end of the day to have athletes playing year round. You know, no. I did that for most of my life, and uh, you know I, your body can break down extremely quickly. So I think long term it's going to be detrimental to the league, and so. Um, I, I think it's up, you know, to, to the people, as I said before, like who support the women at the end of the day to, to continuously lobby for them and to continuously try to push for, you know, equal pay or, you know, uh, better pay, um, and, and at the end of the day, giving, you know, the women a better opportunity to, you know, uh, be successful long-term. So,
1: so Switching gears a little bit, um, David and Malcolm, I wanted to ask you um, there was recently a story about a 43 year old woman uh, who opened a bar that was called the Sports Bra in Portland, Oregon, um, where only women athletes appear on the TV. So, a completely novel concept because I have to admit, when I go into sports bars, I pretty rarely ever see any women's sports on, usually, there's if there, there's nothing else on if if women's sports is on, and amazingly business has been really good for her. And despite the niche business model and the record of inflation that's been going on now, she brought in almost a million dollars since the bar opened. I think late last year. So, do you think that maybe this is a sign of some things changing a little bit when it comes to maybe um, men being willing to watch women's sports?
3: I think. Uh, I think for me. Um... You know this is this is this is not the first product or or brand that I've seen that specifically focuses on women's sports I mean you have platforms like just women's sports, which is a you know specifically focused on you know bringing attention and awareness uh you know to to women's sports through media and newsletters and podcasts and things of the nature. you have platforms like the guests who are doing that and have over I want to say 400,000 subscribers um, in their newsletter, and then platforms like Together, who are building like lifestyle brands, and just um, women's uh, media platforms that are that are spe- specifically focused on bringing more attention and awareness around the athletes and, and storytelling. I think um, is is all a, p- a positive step in the right direction um, to just overall growth and awareness around women's sports. So um, I think. You know this business model and uh, these these niche brands are are going to continue to grow because there is a vested interest in seeing women's sports. Uh, you know, supported and and move forward. So um, I'm in favor of it and and really you know kind of support these brands in any way possible. And I and I as I said before, just start see these brands growing a lot more in the future as women's sports continue to expand and and have more opportunities.
0: Building on on what Malcolm was saying, uh, I I think one of the one of a couple of things I would note one is uh, a significant number of, of fans of women's sports are, are definitely men. These are not it is not just women who support um, women's sports. It's also the case it works the other way around. A significant number a percentage of of fans of men's sports are women. Uh, surveys show something like forty five percent of all sports fans are women. Uh, men don't typically know that. Um, and that is because women have learned that when you tell men that that they like sports, uh, men do this thing where they give women a quiz to <laughs> see if that's true, which is a really I don't know if Lisa's had that experience.
1: No, my husband knew I' love sports from the day we met, so I didn't have that problem thankfully
0: uh, i've I've asked that question in a number of my both gender economics and sports economic class, and I've had a number of women confirm this. Also, wow. people have written articles about this. This is a fairly common response that men react that way. Wow. Um, and so it, it, I think one of the things I would say about having uh, a bar that's dedicated to women's sports is that you've also sort of created an environment where women can come and watch sports and not have someone come and give them a quiz about... And, and these quizzes are really tremendously insulting and inane um and so it, it would be um if mike said to somebody i'm a knicks fan uh if, if mike said that to someone and then they immediately started quizzing them on on well give me the starting roster of the knicks from 1958 uh, um and so and if you can't answer that question you're not really a knicks fan yeah uh it, it, it just seems like a rather silly thing to do uh, but men do this, uh, so so creating an environment where women can go and say, "Hey, look, I can be a sports fan. I can root for my teams, and I don't have someone harassing me about this." Uh, seems like an immensely positive step forward.
4: Yeah, I think it's, it's an interesting point about you know women watching men's sports and men watching women's sports and where the fan bases are are, are coming from. Um, I know that you know Lisa's question I, thought, I, I paused when she asked it because she talked about the sports bra. Um, and still framed as a place for men to come watch when I was, when in my mind, this was women watching women's sports. And I think it, it you know, can and kind of needs to be both, um, for this to really pop. Um, and, you know, lest we be, you know, too optimistic, I will share that, you know, I was talking with a good friend of mine. Um, I was in Boston, uh, I went to the Red Sox game I met him afterwards for a drink. Um, and I was saying, Hey, I'm really excited. We're doing this podcast later in the week. I said, what's, what's it about? I said, Oh, we're going to have these two guys on. We're going to talk about women's sports. Uh, and he was saying, "Look, I'm a I'm a middle aged guy. I, when I was in my 20s, I used to spend eight hours a day on Sunday watching NFL, and I watched a million different things. And now I'm in the process of pruning. Right? I have two kids. I have limited bandwidth. And he was and he said, he said, Mike, I'm not going to watch women's sports. I'm 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 in the le- I'm watching less, <laughs> less. I used to watch 100 percent, you know, 100 hours of men's sports, and now I'm watching 50 hours. And that's what I've done. So so I do think that there are a lot of challenges, and I think that is you know a reality at least in, in that." Conversation. So, um, any closing thoughts for uh, fr- from from anyone? I think this is a really great conversation, but um, I didn't want to leave that parting word. Um, but but uh, Malcolm, anything on the close?
3: As I said before, like I think we'll continue to see the growth um, and yeah. uh, more people supporting women's sports. But you know, as we kind of alluded to uh, numerous times, like it's just going to take. Uh, you know, it's going to happen over time. It's not going to happen overnight. So it's up to the people who. Um, really care about the progress of women's sports. To continue supporting in any way possible, and and spreading the narrative, and uh, really just continue pushing the, the you know the overall ecosystem forward.
4: Yeah. Thanks, Malcolm. David. Any parting
3: words?
0: I I, I would have this to say to your to your friend. Uh, I think that i've often had this conversation with men who say they just don't like women's sports or they don't wish to follow women's sports i think one of the issues people have in understanding sports fandom is they don't really understand how they became sports fans in the first place and typically it happens when you're younger uh, and so if you are middle-aged or an older man and you live, grew up in an environment where women's sports were never on television, you weren't exposed to it, well, of course you're not going to be a fan of that. You didn't get exposed to it at the age where it was likely you'd become a fan. It's like asking you to take up smoking when you're 50 years old. You're not going to do that either. Um, and so I, I think it's it's understanding how fandom works. It's not a comment on the product itself. It's a comment on on the nature of what it means to be a fan.
4: Yeah, really interesting point that's it for this week's episode really appreciate uh you both coming on lisa and i've been threatening uh to do a sports episode for the entirety of the existence of the podcast and i'm so glad i can't imagine two better people uh to have and and have, have a conversation with um so lisa and i will catch you next time on the inclusion evolution
0: thank you for listening to inclusion evolution the views expressed during this podcast are solely those of the hosts and not of their respective law firms. Share your thoughts with us by emailing us at llmuller at or mkasden at wigan.com.